I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to Acts chapter 2. Hopefully some of you will recall that we spent some time in the early parts of Acts about a year ago, and I was able to preach to you a series of sermons uh, ending at Acts 2 verse 41. So we're going to pick that up at verse 42, but just to refresh us with the context, we'll begin reading at verse 37, and we are here on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. There has been the speaking in tongues, and Peter has preached his sermon. And then we get this, verse 37, chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, and that's the crowd of Jews, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And here begins our text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So far, our text. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 133, stanzas 1 and 2. Holy and loved people of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, this coming Thursday, as I mentioned, is Ascension Day. And so, as explained in the bulletin, we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. We're doing that in order to zero in on the effects of Christ's ascension into heaven. In a very real way, the whole book of Acts is a celebration of Christ's ascension. Pretty well, the whole book describes the difference the ascension of Jesus makes to us as His people, but even to the world beyond. If you consider that at the beginning of the book of Acts, there is a a small group of believers, 120 Jewish Christians, followers of Jesus, by the end of the book of Acts, some 35 years later, 
there are multiple churches all over Judea and Samaria and throughout Gentile lands into southern Asia, even into Europe, says Luke by the end. The whole book of Acts presents the work of Jesus as a snowball. It just rolls on. As a snowball rolls down a mountain, it gets bigger and bigger. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. Or maybe better, it's like what Daniel describes in chapter 2 of his prophecy. It's like that rock that Daniel sees. You remember that vision? The rock cut out by hands that were divine, and the rock rolls into the kingdoms of the earth according to Daniel's vision, knocking those earthly kingdoms flat and itself growing to become a huge mountain. A great kingdom, says Daniel, that shall never be destroyed. That's the story of Acts. In fact, we're still living in that story because that mountain of Christ's kingdom is still growing up until today. Luke, in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, he tells us the story of Jesus' earthly ministry after the Son of God had descended from heaven to earth, and he concentrated his work in a small area of Israel's land. And now, Luke, in his second book, the book of Acts, he tells us the story of Jesus' heavenly ministry after he ascended back into heaven as Son of God, Son of Man to be given the kingship of David at his father's right hand to rule the universe. That's what Jesus is doing. So all throughout this book of Acts, we see King Jesus at work. And in our text, at the conclusion of the day of Pentecost, we see the start of the king's work gathering in his chosen people. He does that by turning their hearts to him and turning their hearts also to each other. And so I bring you this Word of God under this theme. King Jesus sends His Spirit. He sends His Spirit to gather together His people. He gathers them together in worship. That's our first point. And He gathers them together in sharing. That's our second point. Well, our text comes on the heels of Peter's Pentecost sermon and shows us the results of his preaching, or more precisely, the results of King Jesus pouring out his Spirit, that Spirit that went forth together with the power of the Word. So King Jesus is in control. At the command of his servant Peter, verse 38, we read that, Peter says to the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 41, those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the very first result of our ascended Lord's reign is the creation of faith where there had been no faith. For who are these 3,000 that convert? These are Jews dwelling in Jerusalem. We read, or we can read in chapter 2, verse 5. These are Jewish people. They are part of what Peter describes in verse 41 as this 
crooked generation. What does he mean by that? Well, they're part of the Jewish nation that had experienced the, the in-person presence of Jesus walking around preaching and teaching and doing miracles right in front of their eyes. They'd seen that for three years, but this group of Jews, this nation of Jews, they had rejected Jesus. They had turned their backs on the Messiah. They had supported the chief priests in their effort to have Jesus put to death. So who are these 3,000? Well, these 3,000, they are enemies of God. These are covenant breakers. These are spiritually dead people. But with the power of the ascended Christ, with the mercy and the grace that He pours out on Pentecost Day, Jesus regenerates the dead. He gives them hearts, new hearts, and He makes them alive spiritually to Himself. We read in verse 37 that these, this group of Jews, they are cut to the heart. For three years they hadn't been cut to the heart. Now they're cut to the heart. They repent of their sin and they did what they had long refused to do. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that something? Maybe you know somebody like that, stubborn in their unbelief. You know someone like that? Maybe you know some covenant breakers, church members that have strayed away, people in your life, in your family that you've lost hope for, they'll never change. Brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. They might well be lost sinners at this very moment. But hope cannot be lost so long as Jesus is on the throne because He has power, He has grace, He has mercy in spades. Look what He did for these 3,000 stubborn Jews. Look what He did to you, for you and for me. So let's, let's not give up hope. Let's double down on the hope by doubling down on our prayers to the Lord who is so good and so powerful and so merciful. So there's this explosion of faith. Amazing. These covenant breakers have a change of heart. They confess Jesus as Lord. The Holy Spirit comes to live in them. What happens next? That's what our text is about. What would the Spirit of Christ prompt these 3,000 new believers to do? Well, Luke tells us in a summary, verse 42... And they devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. These are their four basic activities, and then what follows in verses 43 to 47 is an elaboration in how they went about doing this and, and the mood in which they they were, the mood of the whole church. Luke describes the mood. And when you look at the whole text, one of the first things that jumps out at you, beloved, in this picture is their sense, their, their profound sense of togetherness. It's implied in verse 42 because it says there that the whole group of believers were doing these four things. But Luke spells it out, verse 44, 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. He says it again, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's this unity suddenly among the 3,000 that hadn't been there before. Luke will stress it again, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, he says, chapter 4. There was something different about these 3,000. They had a sense of, of, of unity. Of, they were bound together. Do you have that sense of togetherness here in Ancaster Congregation? Do you feel one with your brothers and sisters in the flock? For this unity, and in fact these four activities, these four basic activities, they were, they were not a one-off. This was not a temporary high for the church. This is what the Spirit of Christ inspires and initiates, it's His doing, and He maintains among all those that He turns to faith in Jesus. True believers, they want to join the body of Christ. The Spirit propels them to that. Spirit-filled Christians, they want they can't wait to be with their fellow Christians. The Spirit of Jesus propels them to that. They want to be praying together. They want to be fellowshipping together. They want to be sharing with each other even food and, and company over a meal. Is that, brothers and sisters, the desire of your heart? Are you filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ? If you are, then that will show. It will show in your love for Christ and in your love for the people of Christ, His church. Do you see that in your heart? Do you see it played out in your life? Did you mean it when we sang the words of Psalm 16, stanza 1? I love your saints. With them I am united, and in their midst my soul will be delighted. Did you mean that? It's not a one-off. Paul commands this same basic spirit-filled attitude in Romans 12, which we read. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Think about your own mood. Never mind your neighbor now. Think about your own mood when it comes to Ancaster Church. Think about your feelings. Do you, does your mood, your feelings match what the Spirit of Christ was sent to prompt in the people of Christ? And if your feelings don't match what Christ wants, what would King Jesus have you do about that? 
Let's talk about this mood. Let's unpack this mood or feeling which the Spirit worked in this renewed gathering. Verse 43, Luke tells us about the feeling and the mood, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was a feeling of awe. That's a, a holy fear. And you might, on quick read, think that the sense of awe was produced by the miraculous signs that the apostles were doing, but Luke does not use the word because there. He's just describing what's going on. Awe came on every soul, and next to that, the apostles were doing miracles. In fact, the awe seems to be there before they start doing the miracles. You can make a case that this holy fear, in fact, comes from the teaching and the preaching of the apostles as it hits the hearts of the people. There's a glimpse of it earlier in verse 37. The people were cut to the heart. That's the beginning of that sense of awe. And really, something awesome has happened, hasn't it? Three thousand Jews had been converted, stubborn Jews. They had been converted and filled with the Holy Spirit. They themselves were living miracles, totally changed women and men who went from despising Jesus to loving Jesus, whom they now realized through Peter's sermon had given up his own life on the cross to pay for their sins. They had been filled with a grief cut to the heart over their, their own sin, and now they stand in awe. They are in awe that all their guilt is forgiven them because of what Jesus did on Golgotha, the cross. It's enough to overwhelm anyone, right, that, that not only are my sins forgiven, but Christ gives His Spirit to live in me. That's a cause for reverence deep reverence for the Lord on high who in grace has decided to make His home inside of me a sinner. I mean, think about that. How can it be that a, a sinner like me not only has his sins taken away, but becomes the residence of the high King of heaven, Jesus Christ? Can we get into that mood, brothers and sisters, that, that sense of, of awe? If that fear of the Lord fills our hearts, then a desire to be together with His church is bound to follow. And together, one of our main desires prompted by the Holy Spirit, will be to worship, to worship our Lord and Savior. If you look at those four activities mentioned in verse 42, <clears throat> I think you can group the first and the last, uh, the apostles' teaching and prayer. You can consider them under the concept of worship, and then the middle two under the concept of sharing, fellowship, and breaking of the bread. The ESV has put some commas in there, forming two different pairs, but you need to understand there are no commas in the, initial, in the original Greek. The order of the Greek is very simple. It's, it's just this 
and this and this and this. It's just four things separated by the word and. So we have to kind of figure out how to understand these four things, and it seems to me that devotion to the apostles' teaching and prayer, those things go together, and they go together especially as something we do as church when the church comes together for worship. In fact, prayer itself is worship, isn't it? There's prayer in the formal gatherings of the church, like we're, we've done already this morning and will do again. But there's also prayer in our families, in our households, in our homes. And it's something that Luke tells us the church did a lot. Already in Acts chapter 1, we read there that the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. That's 1 verse 14. So they were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Very similar language to 2 verse 42. So it starts out with 120 together praying. Now there are 3,000 together praying, perhaps as a group at the temple. It's a large group. Perhaps also as smaller groups in their various homes over their meals. Luke mentions that in verse 46, that they were together in their homes sharing meals. But either way, these 3,000, they gave themselves to this. They devoted themselves to this. They dedicated themselves to what? To praying together. Are we doing that? Again, this is not a one-off. This is one of the permanent features of church life. Paul says it in Romans 12, that passage we read, but he writes about it in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. He writes about it in Ephesians 6, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul and the other apostles, they practiced what they preached. They, they prayed daily. You can read through Paul's letters and see that many times he refers to his own prayers and exhorts his readers to pray. The apostles prayed regularly, daily, intensely. Jesus prayed regularly, daily, intensely. Flowing out of that reverential fear of the Lord, these believers, they wanted to be speaking with their Lord. They wanted to pour out to Him the praise of their hearts. They wanted to pour out their needs as well. Is this a desire burning among us? How much do we seek to pray together as fellow members? Not too long ago, some of our members started discipleship groups and prayer groups, discipleship groups for guys, prayer groups for the ladies. And a big part of each of those groups is to give dedicated time to praying together. Well, that is commendable, isn't it? Beautiful. It's good. And I would say, brothers and sisters, let's build on that. Let's seek to join something like that if we haven't been there already. Let's invite others to that. Let's find ways to, to pray together. And also, let's learn to pray in our prayers together. Let's learn to pray as Christ would have us pray. He's given us that model in the Lord's Prayer which begins and ends with praise to our God and Father. Notice that coming out in our text, verse 47. The believers were together praising God. 
No doubt they did that in their singing, but no doubt they also did that in their prayers as taught by the Lord Jesus. So in our prayers, we absolutely need to, to pour out our needs, personal needs, the needs for others, right? Uh, but we should also spend time thanking the Lord, also spend time praising the Lord. Imagine if you were one of those 3,000 converts who had just been converted from a life of rejecting Jesus, a life of sin and guilt. Imagine that you've been set free from your sins. Imagine that you have been given the free gift of everlasting life with God. You would want to thank and praise your Savior Jesus Christ, wouldn't you? That, that, that wouldn't stop your whole life long, would it? Well, brothers and sisters, you don't have to imagine it, nor do I, because that's exactly what's happened to you and me. You and I have been regenerated. At some point in our life, we have been born again. We have been rescued from enslavement to sin and damnation unto hell. We have been granted to live in our Father's mansion forever and ever, paid for by the blood of Christ. We have every reason to praise and thank Him every day, all day, don't we? These are things we have to taste again for the first time. These are things we have to recapture. You know, the Lord Jesus wrote a letter to one of the churches in the Revelation. And he has to address that church and he says, you've lost your first love. I think that's sometimes the danger for us who've grown up in the church, who know these things. These are not strange things. Have we lost our first love? Do we have the zeal to be devoted to these four activities together? We get to do prayer and worship, uh, teaching on the apostles. We get to do this together as a whole congregation twice every Lord's Day. Do you think that these 3,000 Christians, spirit-filled Christians, that they would choose to stay home in the afternoon if they were in your shoes and had your opportunities? Our text says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to prayers. Well, the apostles' teaching has since that time been put down in Scripture, right? The New Testament is the apostles' teaching. And what was the basis for the apostles' teaching? What were they teaching from or of? Well, their basis was the Old Testament. They took all the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Peter does it in his sermon on, on Pentecost. He just explains Psalm 16, and he explains Joel chapter 2, and he explains some other references, and he threads it all together, and he preaches to them. Well, that's what's going on here every single Sunday, morning and afternoon. Do we not have opportunity to do this together twice? And isn't it more than an opportunity? Second service on the Lord's Day, is it an option? Or is it more than an option? 
two Sundays ago, we were gathered here. We prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ to give us something. We prayed to the Lord Jesus to give us deacons and to give us elders. Why did we do that? Because the apostles of Christ command us in Scripture to appoint elders and deacons whom Jesus gives us to serve in the congregation. The deacons as ministers of mercy, the elders as overseers who watch over the souls of the flock. These office bearers, they come to us from Jesus. It's His idea and command to appoint them over us. So then it's Jesus who rules us through the elders. So, when the elders call the congregation in the name of Jesus to, per, to gather in person for worship, 9.30 and 3.30 every Sunday, it must be that Jesus is calling us. Do we reckon with that? Is watching church at home on YouTube the same as being here, live, in person? Is that a substitute that Jesus would commend? I'm not speaking about when a person is sick, okay? I'm not trying to make people who stay home because of health issues feel badly. No. I'm talking about people who are quite capable of gathering with God's people morning and afternoon, but who make a choice not to do so. Does that choice line up with the mark of the Holy Spirit found in our text, where the Spirit works in a person a desire to be together worshiping Christ, sitting under the preaching and praying together? If we love Jesus, we will love His church. Those things go together. If we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, we will be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to praying together. We will, in short, be there when the church is called to gather for worship. We will be there as much as we possibly can. And out of that devotion... To be together in worship will naturally flow a devotion to be together in sharing. That's what those two middle two activities describe, the fellowship and the breaking of bread. That word fellowship has the root concept in it of sharing. Depending on the context, it can mean different kinds of sharing. Paul Elsewhere writes about people being called into the fellowship of his son, of God's son. Or as we hear in the benediction given at the end of worship services, we may enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And then the main idea is a spiritual fellowship, a spiritual sharing. It means that we enjoy a relationship of peace with God. We have a a friendship. We experience a holy friendship with God. That's that primary sense of fellowship there. We have this kind of spiritual fellowship at all times because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And you could say we have a heightened sense of that fellowship with God, that friendship with God in times of worship 
and in times of need, right? You, you must have experienced that in your time of need, your hour of need. You cry out to God, and God surrounds you with His presence. You feel it more than usual. Now, because God in Christ shares with us the divine blessings included in salvation, because God essentially shares Himself with us, He now wants us to share ourselves with each other. You see? This vertical fellowship leads directly to a horizontal fellowship. Union with Jesus means union with each other. So he's really speaking here about this sense of togetherness, we're a family of God. We are brothers and sisters to one another. And that is certainly a, a spiritual fellowship. So each of us is a, a Christian friend to each other. We enjoy Christian friendship and harmony. But it goes beyond that to include a sharing of our physical blessings with each other, particularly where there is need. That's what Luke has his eye on here in our text with the idea of fellowship. The same root word comes back in verse 44, translated there as in common. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They had all things shared between them. So as the Holy Spirit led these 3,000 new believers to be learning more from the apostles about salvation, he also gave them a new attitude toward each other, an attitude of compassion, an attitude of selflessness, and a desire to serve the needs of the other exactly the way the Lord Jesus served the needs of his neighbors in his earthly ministry. Think of the Lord Jesus walking the earth. He never, he never acted selfishly, did he? What he had to give, and he didn't have money, silver and gold, but what he had to give, he freely shared it with those who needed it. He proclaimed the gospel of salvation. He gifted people with healing. He cast demons out from those who were possessed. He raised people from the dead. Everywhere he could, Jesus helped the downtrodden and the poor. It's the very same Spirit that God had long before commanded to be exemplified at the Feast of Weeks. We read about that in Deuteronomy 16. That's the same as Pentecost. From Deuteronomy 16, God said, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and daughter. By the way, your male servant, your female servant has to rejoice. And then the Lord adds to the list the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner. The fatherless, the widow who are among you, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. God set you free. My son, my daughter, all of my people, they have been set free from slavery in Egypt. So make sure that your brothers and sisters may enjoy that freedom with you. They are not to be enslaved by poverty. They are not to be afflicted by having so little Make sure the sojourner, this is Deuteronomy 16, the sojourner, that's a visitor, right? Someone who's in your midst for a time but isn't actually part of the people. 
the visitor who nevertheless loves the Lord, you make sure that the visitor is, feels welcomed and supported among you. He's got to rejoice. She's got to rejoice, same as you. Make sure the fatherless, says the Lord. Fatherless, that would be describing an orphan, right? An orphan has no one to look after, him or her. Make sure that every orphan is cared for, every orphan is loved. Make sure the orphan feels loved. And the widow, don't forget the widows, who has no husband to love her, no income in that society to provide for her, Make sure she's given companionship. Make sure she is financially supported. Share with all those in need. This is the Feast of Weeks. The harvest has come in. Make sure that all those who have need are, are given to. Share with them as I have shared with you. That is the spirit of Pentecost, the spirit of the Feast of Weeks. And here we see it in Acts 2 on full display. It should be the spirit of the church all the time. It's a beautiful spirit, isn't it? We should be clear that Luke is describing here a voluntary sharing of what God has given to an individual person or household. This is not a mandated in the sense of you, you have to go out and sell certain, a certain portion of your goods. Luke is not describing some form of communism or even a community of goods as if all the believers have to sell everything they have and deposit it into a big pot and no longer have any control over their property. Certainly it's true some of the people sold their property or part of their possessions. But notice it's the same people who after selling it, they go about distributing it to the poor. Later, in Acts 5, Peter makes it clear that Ananias and Sapphira, they had a right to do with their property what they wanted to do. Their sin was not giving all the money that they sold, that they sold their property for. Their sin was lying about it. We'll come to that, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But they were not compelled to give all their proceeds. There is no command to sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. No, the command is to care for the poor. The command is to use the gifts God has given you to help those who need help. How exactly you go about doing that, that's up to you. Again, this is not a one-off. Paul writes about this in Romans 12, this, this duty to care for each other. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use those gifts. And he mentioned some gifts, okay? If the gift is prophecy, use it in proportion to our faith. If the gift is service, then you use your gift in your serving. If it's a gift of teaching, use it in your teaching. If you are an exhorter, use it in your exhortation. If you are one who contributes, there's a financial aspect, you do it in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Consider the grace given to you personally, brothers and sisters. That means consider what God has gifted you with. Whether that's in material possessions or whether it's 
talents and abilities or time and opportunity or some combination of those things, consider those gifts and put those gifts to good use for your fellow believers, for those who are in need especially. Now, here in Ancaster, let's be honest, the financial need among us is quite low. But let us think now of Christians in other places. The Ukraine, we've heard about lately. But think of China, Iran, various other Muslim countries where Christians are persecuted, where they can't possibly gather openly like we're doing this morning because they would be arrested and thrown into jail. Where we have opportunity, let us give to support them. Be generous with your giving. Be joyful, as verse 46 says, knowing that knowing all that God has first given you in Jesus Christ. I mean, He's given you, He's given me literally everything in Jesus. Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, it's all ours. The new earth, it's coming to us in glory. The few pennies, the few dollars that we can give out now, it's, it's, it's so, it's not even worth comparing to what's coming. But there's more than money that we can give out. Each of us needs to be thinking of ways that we can share something much more valuable than money. Thinking of ways we can share ourselves with each other. That's the ultimate in fellowship. I think that's what's captured in the, the phrase, breaking the bread. There's been some debate whether this is a reference here to the Lord's Supper, which sometimes is referred to as breaking the bread. But when you look through Luke's writings and the other New Testament writers, that expression is not used exclusively to refer to the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it is. Lots of times it's not. Lots of times breaking the bread just refers to sharing a meal together. And I think that in this context... That's the natural reading. For Luke comes back to it in verse 46, same expression, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So this seems to be about meals in the homes, not the Lord's Supper as Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 11. And you can imagine the situation. Among these 3,000 believers were evidently people of wealth and people who had very, very little. There were people who had lots to eat, and there were people who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And, and, and Christians were looking out for each other, these 3,000 believers. The rich saw the need for the poor, and they invited into their homes. It was especially needful and fitting that the believers opened their homes to one another. They didn't just drop food off on their porch, the porch of the poor. They invited them in. Come in. You need food. I've got food. But you know what? I'm going to give you more than food. Let's spend time together. Let's share each other's company, the rich and the poor. You know, in that society, for the class differences that existed, a lot sharper than what we have today, the rich didn't really mingle with the poor. The rich looked down on the poor. 
But here you've got the rich welcoming the poor into their homes, saying, sit at my table. Like the parable that, that, that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Lazarus at the gate couldn't even have the crumbs for the rich man's table. That was the norm in that society. But here in Christ's society, the norm is flipped upside down. Lazarus is invited in. He sits at the table with the rich man. The rich man binds up his wounds. That's the kind of spirits going on here. What better way, really, eh, to share ourselves with each other than to do so over a meal, a fellowship meal around a dinner table? All through the Bible, we find eating meals together as a primary form of this deep fellowship. Think of Abraham providing a, a meal for those special guests, the Lord and his two angels. Think of Moses and the elders eating with his father-in-law Jethro. A little bit later, Moses and the elders, they go up to Mount Sinai and they eat with the Lord. Quite something. Exodus 24. Think of the Israelites who were commanded to bring a, a peace offering to the tabernacle and then they could eat a fellowship meal in the tabernacle, fellowshipping with the Lord. Think of the Lord Jesus who came eating. He ate with sinners. He ate with tax collectors. He even ate with Pharisees. And most of all, he ate with his church, the disciples, the apostles. This kind of fellowship involves hospitality, opening our homes to each other and to others, to strangers, to potential converts. This too is a permanent feature of Christ's Spirit-filled church. Paul writes about it in Romans 12. We read, we read it there, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, right? You, you get to know someone over your dinner table or maybe it's your coffee table after church this morning, whatever. We can be creative with the hospitality. But the intimacy needs to be there. That's the idea where you, you open your hearts to each other. You can weep with each other only once you get to know each other. You can truly rejoice with each other only once you get to know the joys of the other. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That's what the Acts 2 people were doing. They were associating with the lowly. There, there should be no lowly in the church, right? The big idea here, the big point that our ascended Lord Jesus is making through the power of His Holy Spirit is this. It is to foster togetherness. Togetherness. Unity. The ascended King Jesus, think about that, He actually wants to be together with a sinner like me and a sinner like you. He gave His Spirit to you and to me. He wants to be together. Can we breathe in that miracle again this morning? And now He's stirring us up through this preaching to want to be together both with Him and with each other. It's another one of Christ's gifts to us the blessing of community, the blessing of a people to whom we belong, a family where we have a place, the blessing of togetherness.
Let's embrace that blessing together. Amen.